Well, good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church, Sun City West. Thank you so much for taking the time and the opportunity to come. This is a day that we have joined together to worship Almighty God, to honor and to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to spend time as a family at the Lord's table, to honor service, service of both our veterans and also uh, service of our deacons and deacon candidates. You're going to hear from all of those in just a little bit. Very special time. And we thank you for taking that time. If you are a guest for the very first time, you have not filled out one of our guest cards, I would ask you, if you would, just to take the card in the pew in front of you, fill it out in its entirety. When you leave today, there are four offering boxes at each of the exits. If you'll just drop that card in one of those, we would certainly appreciate that. And uh, I wonder if you might join me in a time of prayer. And then we want to honor our veterans. Father, thank you for the time and the opportunity that we have come together today. What a special day it is. Every single day, we get the privilege of coming before your presence in prayer and in your word and listening to your spirit that you have given to each one of us who have a faith in Christ, that we might listen and we might be obedient. And the privilege of coming on a Sunday as the full body of Christ to do those very same things in unison and unity to give you honor and praise and glory through songs, through prayers, through actions, music, and your word. And Father, above all, I pray we would give ourselves to you in worship. And so this morning, we look forward to experiencing you. Around the world, there are many that aren't able to meet like we meet today. Today is the International Day of Prayer for persecuted Christians around the world. In so many countries of the world, believers are being persecuted, imprisoned, even killed. And I pray that we'll be mindful and that we'll spend time in prayers of intercession on an ongoing basis for believers who do not have the rights that we have, but have the eternal right with you because of their relationship with you. Father, help them to know that their brothers and sisters are praying for them. Lord, as we enter this time, a very special time, I pray you would bless and honor this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once a year, usually on the Sunday prior to Veterans Day, we just want to take the opportunity to recognize our veterans. In years past, we've had them march in, and they've been uh, just all across the front. Uh, we've noticed that, uh, that some of our men and women are aging gracefully, so we want to try to make it as easy as possible. And so... As we think about our veterans, those that have served in the various wars and conflicts, uh, my father, his uh, uh, four brothers and a stepbrother, all in World War II, all saw action in the South Pacific. Um, a nephew of mine served in the Coast Guard. Uh, Debbie's mom and dad, both.
both served in the military. Uh, her father retired from the Air Force. Uh, like many of you, we have family members, we have people that are close and near dear to us that sacrifice greatly. And for some of us who have never been in the military, we, we don't know really the extent of the sacrifice on an ongoing and day-by-day basis. But we want to recognize them because we have that ability to gather together in freedom today <coughs> to do that. So I wonder if you might join me in asking all of our veterans, every single one of them, to stand and remain standing in their position, if you would. Every branch, stand if you would, and remain standing. We have a very special gift for you, and uh, if you'll remain standing, uh, we have our ushers and helpers who are going to give those those tokens of our appreciation, and that's all it is, is a token, because we appreciate you so much, but we want you to know we love you and we care about you. So if if you would, take the opportunity. Remain standing, and these, these folks will be passing out these special gifts. you have not received our gift to you, would you just raise your hand so that we make sure and know? Okay. Would you please thank them one more time? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Go ahead and be seated if you would. And I just want to recognize another group of folks. If you are a spouse a loved one, of a veteran who has passed on. We would like to honor you and your spouse. If you would stand, if you are a spouse of a veteran who has passed. (laughs) 
Don't sit down. We have a gift for you, too. If you would just remain standing for just a moment, okay? Just keep standing. They'll be there in a moment. You'll stand back up if you would for that gift. We would appreciate that. Would you thank them one more time? If somehow one of our veterans or one of our spouses did not receive that gift at the end of the service, they will be available for you. If you will just make sure and see Miss Nancy or myself, we'll make sure that you get that. Dr. Bob Marty, we have asked to come and lead in a time of prayer. A prayer of encouragement, a prayer of commitment, a prayer for our veterans and their families. We've asked the veterans and the spouses if they would stand and they were recognized in that way. I'm going to ask the rest of you to stand and allow them to be seated. We might give honor to them for the sacrifices they have endured. So would you stand if you're not a veteran or a spouse? Bow and pray with me, please. Our Father, we come humbly into your presence this morning with hearts that are overjoyed because you have blessed us to live in this country called America. We want to thank you for the men and the women who have been represented and recognized today. And Father, our hearts go out to those who lost loved ones in the various wars who lost the opportunity for sharing life and love, meaning and purpose, that their lives mean so much to us today, and we're so thankful and grateful for them. We thank you, Father, for the way you've watched over these families, the way you've watched over this country, the way, in spite of the way we are, you still love us. Help us, Father, to remember that the sacrifices were not in vain. Help us to understand, Father, that your love continues to be a love that covers all around the world at all times. And Father, the world, turbulent as it is in which we live today, we pray that we who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior experience a relationship with you as our Heavenly Father, that that love that we know might be spread in such a way that we might become the people and the world for which you've created us. We love you, Father. We thank you for the gifts 
of life, the gift of sacrifice, even for the gift of loss of so many. And we pray, Father, for the strength, the encouragement, and the power to go on day by day, remembering that we're not here because of who we are. We're here because of the sacrifice of others. We express to you our gratitude and our love for the peace that we do know, for the joy that is ours, for the blessings you continue to give. And might we all begin to understand, if not already we've understood it, but begin to understand that real peace can only come from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you for the sacrifice of those who have given of their service and many of their lives for love that went beyond themselves. And thank you for the love of your Son, Jesus, that goes beyond Him. My peace, strength, comfort, thanksgiving, and gratitude be recognized as a gift from you, our Heavenly Father, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Remain standing, please, as we sing together.
I know you've already stood, but would you stand as we sing together, He Keeps Me Singing.
you'll take your Bibles or just look on the screen. There are three short passages that I would like to read this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the scripture says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God pitched a tent for the sun. And then the last passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The United States has continued to move far from its Judeo-Christian roots. So much so that in the 1960s, a number of philosophers and liberal theologians popularized the phrase, the term, God is dead. And a movement was born. This was the culmination of this spiritual regression that had its impetus a century earlier with the writings of Frederick Nietzsche, who provided atheism with its philosophical basis, and Charles Darwin, who offered a scientific rationale. Today, atheism is implicitly taught throughout our public school system because in the realm of the public school system, in the attempt to be pluralistically neutral, they ignore God altogether. So God has become dead to so many of the younger generation, not through atheistic propaganda, but because of the perceived understanding of the irrelevance of God in academic disciplines. We see that in so many different ways. The latest surveys that have, uh, have been communicated to us show that the nots, or nuns, as they call it, percentage-wise, are growing exponentially. Meaning that they don't have any religious affiliation, they do not believe in God. And so as we have continued in this passage on the biblical worldview, and addressing the key theological and doctrine tenets that is so critical to us for us to have a biblical worldview, we come to the last one, which is, does God exist? 
I've broken this in two different parts because there are two different aspects that I want to address this Sunday and then again next Sunday. The question is, how does a believer respond to those who do not believe that God exists? Well, we understand that there's a human dilemma. As you read Scripture, there are biblical presuppositions that have a bearing on understanding why there is so much controversy over this belief in God. The following concepts are presupposed, taken for granted by the Scripture, that they are automatic. There was no need to prove them. One of those is the sufficiency of natural revelation. God's existence is assumed and not proven in Scripture. You go back to the first passage that we looked at, Genesis 1.1. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The writer didn't seek to go and try to prove God's existence. It was presupposed. He's the one that did it. He's the one who took absolutely nothing and spoke into it everything that exists today, the universe. However, the Bible also states that creation itself, through natural revelation, testifies to his existence. We read that in uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, in Psalm 19 and also Romans chapter 1. He said, the beauty of the earth, everything that is put in its place. Paul said that, that <clears throat> the invisible God is seen through every single thing that we see, so that, that the would-be doubters are at, without excuse. You can have this understanding of God and the existence of a supreme being, an intelligent creator, without ever having heard that, because he says creation puts an exclamation point on it. Another concept that is presupposed by Scripture is the inborn spiritual nature of humankind. Anthropologists have long observed that, that human beings are incurably religious. God fashioned us for eternity. In spite of our mortal conditions, naturally we find ourselves longing for something more, thinking there's something better out there, something beyond. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That phrase, that he has set eternity in the hearts of man, tells us that he created us to be eternal beings. The French philosopher Blas Pascal referred to this as the God-shaped vacuum in all of us. So why, if we have this innate incurable desire to be religious, the spiritual vacuum of wanting something more. We have everything around us as far as creation that says there was something that put all of this in motion. Why is such a struggle with belief? And that takes us to the reality of human depravity. You see, we have all inherited a fallen, sinful 
nature from our first ancestors. Paul said in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. See, this inherited sinful nature, this, this bent toward choosing to go the other direction, the darker direction, it affects not only our body and our soul, but it also affects our mind. So in our natural state, we are not neutral in interpreting spiritual things. We are, in reality, enemies of God. Oh, it's not something overt that we say, oh, I'm going to be an enemy of God. But when we choose to sin away from his righteousness that separates us, we're an enmity between God. Paul said in Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were sinners in your minds because of your evil behavior. He said, once you were that way, alienated, your sinful behavior, you were enemies of God. The beautiful thing is that he said, once you were that. But in talking to the believers at Colossae, they were no longer that way because they have had embraced Christ into their lives. Our spiritual reasoning is corrupted according to the Apostle Paul. Those that don't have Christ in their life were not thinking spiritually correct. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so when we don't have that spiritual God-shaped vacuum filled with Christ, with a relationship with the Father, therefore we're we're not thinking spiritually. We, we don't understand the concepts. We don't understand worshiping God. We don't understand God. Even though mentally we might say, oh yes, there, there is a God, but we haven't understood His purpose in reaching out through His Son to give us life everlasting. We have a natural bent, a, a, a predisposition toward, toward what is false spirituality, according to what John said. In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the scripture says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Therefore, who does evil hate? Therefore, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We have this understanding that without Christ, we have chosen to sin. That has put us at a distance between us and God. And therefore, we fight anything that is spiritual. We don't want our deeds to come to be seen. But God sees them constantly. And he's given us the opportunity to have those sins eradicated through Christ and Christ alone. In dealing with the idea of why there would even be a conversation about whether there is a God or not, we might come to a correct understanding to say that whatever reasons 
a skeptic may have to the non-existent truth or to God must be seen in light of their fallen, corrupted reasoning and natural hostility towards a personal deity that they are accountable to. In other words, the reason people aren't coming to Christ and following the, the desire of God is because every one of us were corrupted. And Christ paid for our corruption, our sin. And those of us who have chosen to say, yes, I want Christ in my life, we have been freed. His Spirit lives in us. We understand the spiritual concepts, but those who have not done that, even those who are religious, who have not allowed Christ to come in, they still don't understand. And so the best way to try to address that is to deny a deity. Therefore, I am not accountable. So what is a reasoned response to atheism? Well, it'd be good to remember that atheism is just one aspect of secular humanism. Secular humanism, as we talked about earlier in, the, in this series, it is this idea, this concept, that there is no supreme being, no intelligent design, no God. Human beings do it on our own. We, we reason through that, and we're just getting better and better, and we'll, we'll do better and better. Atheism's greatest weakness lies in the fact that it is little more than a denial. It can't order, offer an adequate explanation and solutions to the great experiences and mysteries of our existence. Where did we come from? Atheism cannot provide an adequate explanation for our existence. Uh, Historically, the issue of causality has been the greatest means of providing evidence for God's existence. And uh, that means that for every effect that we observe, there is a cause, a great cause, an adequate uh, uh, cause. And we would call that God. And the scripture says in the beginning, God created. We see the creation, therefore we understand that there must have been a cause for the, for the creation. There must be an intelligent des design. There are four areas that this is spoken of. When you are talking to a person who does not have a belief in God, we come from a perspective of saying, in a more intellectual understanding, here is the rationale and the reason for the existence of God and why we believe that. First is cosmology. It means that since the universe exists, it must have had an adequate cause. Therefore, an intelligent first cause. Meaning... In the beginning, God created. We see the universe. We come to an understanding there must have been a cause to this effect. To reject this notion, the atheist is forced into one of three options. They have to come out and say, well, the universe created itself. Well, this doesn't seem logical. In fact, it's absurd, because the universe would have had to have existed before it existed to create itself. The second would be the universe came from nothing. But this is irrational, because an effect cannot be greater than its cause. It violates the first law of thermodynamics. 
Then they would have to come to the third one. The universe itself is eternal. But this contradicts, as the scientists say, the second law of thermodynamics that basically says the earth is running down. In other words, it's got so much energy and, and it continues to run down over a period of time. And so how can, if the universe is eternal, it would have already run down? There are laws of science that put it into play that the universe itself expresses the existence of God. The chain of cause and effect cannot be infinite, but must terminate at the first cause, which in itself is eternal and uncaused, and we call him God. In other words, everything started with God, everything is going to end with God. The second is a term called teleology. It means that the universe demonstrates order and purposeful design. In other words, why do planets not just run into each other? Why are we able to live here on the earth when the sun burns everything else around here? You go to Venus, it's too hot. You go to Mars, it's too cold and beyond. There is this order in the universe that everything is timed perfectly. And it's a, a purposeful design. And it shows that it has an intellectual originator, one who put it in motion. Put it another way, non-thinking matter and energy could not have arranged the complexities in nature that we see in the universe any more than putting all the parts of a swish watch together in a box and shaking it all up and hoping all the pieces find its way where it should be. The third is ontology. Ontology means this. Imperfect man could not think of a perfect, infinite being unless the idea was put inside of him first. In other words, if somehow we had just come from a blob somewhere and we just elevated our intelligence moving forward, we never would have even had the concept of a perfect intellect to even put them in place of an infinite being because we don't have that concept because we're finite we don't think infinitely that's what the writer of ecclesiastes 3:11 said we wrote we we spoke of just a few moments ago that god put all of this in place and in the heart of man he put eternity that didn't come innately from us if there were no absolutely no infinite perf uh, perfect being, then finite man would no more think of such a intellectual, a creator being than a caterpillar would think of a human being. Wouldn't have the concept to put a human being in their mind. So. 
proof of God's existence. We've talked about that. Cosmology, teleology, ontology, and the last is morality. Our, our defense, our understanding intellectually of how God exists. Let's talk about morality. There, there's an inborn sense of right and wrong, good and evil, the existence uh, of, of an absolute standard. We might call him the lawgiver. There is this understanding in our morality that across the board, there is this common understanding of what's right and wrong. Now it's being twisted, I promise you, today in a lot of different ways. But down deep in the heart, that had to have come from somewhere. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they themselves are a law. They even, even though they do not have the law, that since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences, also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So what is Paul saying? That even though they didn't have the law of Judaism, they had a law written on their hearts and their conscience. It is the law that God had given to each and every person. It's innate to know the difference between right and wrong and, and, and good and evil. Every time we, we argue or debate with somebody, we have this idea, this understanding, and we appeal to this, this common, common ethical standard. That when we have this debate back and forth, we argue back and forth, there is an ethical conduct that takes place. Put it another way, how, how can we call a crooked line straight unless we know what straight is? Where did we get the concept of a straight line so that we could identify what's a crooked line? Where do we know what is good unless it had been put within us? The moral law is not culturally relative because all cultures for all time have agreed on some basic ethical issues. What is cowardice? What is selfishness? What is double-crossing friends? Well, they're universally condemned. Doesn't matter what culture you go to, there are some things that were just right and wrong, good and bad. Atheism cannot provide an adequate explanation for existence, for God's existence, but, but we have the ability to do that because there are standards by creation itself that shows it, in addition to what God's Word has to say. Also, we find that atheism cannot provide an adequate solution to the human experience. Uh, in a book, A Shattered Vestige, the author notes that atheism's weakness and great loss is revealed in part in its inability to prove meaningful answers to human experience. An atheist can't give you some things that will make you look hopeful to the future. You see, because a universe without God offers no law. 
As indicated earlier, atheism provides no basis for ultimately deciding what's right and wrong. Because if there is no God, then man assigns what is right or wrong by their own belief. It's arbitrary, whatever those values are. It's nothing more than a person's subjective opinion. If there's no absolute standard barrier, absolute, no absolute moral, ethical standard... And whatever I think is right becomes law. And usually that expresses itself on who has the power or pragmatism or anything that can be justified. I think about uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany. The idea was a cleansing to bring about an incredible, an incredible, you know, superior race. And so whatever, whatever means justified, it was fine. Including killing six million Jews plus millions of others. But it was right. Because he said it was right. And he was in power. The ruling ethic for us is this understanding that there must be an intelligent design, a creator we call God, that puts together a standard of what's right and wrong because it's innate in us. And it's not and should never be a decisive factor that a human says what's right and wrong, but what God says is right and wrong, because he is perfect. We also find that a universe without God offers no hope. Without God, life, relationships, meaning, justice, it all ends at the grave. It just, it's gone, period. Death means nothingness, despite human, the, the human heart that longs, desires for something beyond the grave. Ultimate justice will never be rendered to anyone if there's no heaven to be gained or hell to be avoided. What comfort can the atheist give parents of a dying child if there is nothing beyond? What help to a broken-hearted person They can give no hope other than somehow just try to get through life. Isn't that a sad existence? A universe without God offers no law, no hope, and it offers no meaning. The three greatest questions that have haunted philosophers through the ages are these. Who am I? Why am I here, and where am I going? Those that do not believe in God, their answers are hopelessly hollow. They say, well, as human beings, we are the result of random, purposeless processes acting through the course of time, and that our lives carry absolutely nothing of eternal significance and that the sum total of our existence is snuffed out 
at the time of our death. Man, that'd make you want to get up in the morning and be excited, wouldn't it? Wow. And yet, in our world, that seems to be darkening, this is the mantra. The man can do better and better and better. And yet we see the world getting darker and darker and darker. In contrast, the Christian affirms that he or she is created in the image of God. That he or she lives for the glory of God and with eternal significance. It matters. And that we will live forever in glory. That's the contrast. The contrast between God's existence are saying He does not exist. We hold to the Scripture, and the Scripture is very clear about God's existence, presupposed in everything. But even by creation itself, the universe itself, it clearly defines and clearly communicates that God is here for you. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, because He loves you. And He opens His arms wide. No matter what sin you have committed, because we all have sinned, but He wants to take your sin away and give you life everlasting. That which fills the spiritual vacuum and Jesus is the only one that can do that. For the believer today, you need to be able to communicate clearly, not only in your own mind about God's existence, but also to your friends who question that. And quite frankly, who go through some difficult times in life saying, well, where is God? to be able to go through and give a reasoned understanding, both in an intellectual way and a biblical way, with the love and grace that God has given you, and the unconditional love as you share it with your friends, and with those that you come in contact with, it can change their life. And this morning, I'm going to ask you an invitation, if you would just give your life to Christ, if you haven't already, well, this morning, recommit yourself where you are in your pew to say, I want to learn more. I want to understand more. God, help me to clearly communicate to those I'm around about your love. You make those recommitments if you would. Father, as we go into our invitation, I pray that we'll make the decision because we've been listening. And we'll make the decision to respond as you've led us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Please. Just as I
Why don't you go ahead and be seated if you would. We're going to move to another part of our worship time, which is the observance of the Lord's Supper. And I'd just like you to bow your heads if you would. Prepare yourself for observing the memorial table. Father, as we come to this time, we want to thank you for your continual revelation of yourself and your qualities throughout the Old Testament and in fullness in Christ Jesus. Peter preached, who was crucified by us. One who was sinless, no sin at all, an innocent man with the fullness, Father, of you, willingly to sacrifice himself. And not only the physical agony, but Father, the spiritual battle that took place was Satan himself. And it was through that battle that he broke the chains of bondage for so many of us as captives. And he paid for our sin. <laughs> you raised him from the dead, a living Savior. And as we approach this memorial table, we remember him. We remember what Jesus has done for us, but we also want to listen to you on how you want us to live for you in a life that is sacrificial. So that others like us who have been in bondage can be set free. And so as we take of the bread and drink of the juice, speak to us, God, as we have prepared our hearts and help us to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
And Jesus said, take it, this is my body.
Jesus said, take and drink it. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you the truth, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The gift of salvation through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The promise of life everlasting, fulfilling the eternal vacuum that we have, but we were created for. It comes through Christ alone. You will join me in prayer, and then we will segment to the next part of our service. Father, thank you. Thank you for your unconditional love. And help these elements that have inspired and encouraged us to be remembrances of the sacrifices, the opportunities, and the gifts of salvation through the gospel that we can give to so many others. And help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. This is a really happy time in the life of our church. For the next three Sundays, you're going to hear uh, candidates for our deacon council. Uh, we have seven candidates to present to you. They're all wonderful individuals, wonderful Christians. And so we begin today with the first two, Casey Boss, and Jim Breger. So listen prayerfully as they come to you with their testimonies. My name is Casey. I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven. <laughs> that was a short testimony, wasn't it? Actually, I was born and raised in a Christian family. I went to Christian school. I was actually baptized as an infant when I was about five days old and uh, continued in that particular denomination for a number of years. But I was actually, I, I made profession of faith, I was actually going through the motions. That's not good enough, is it? No, I was actually just going through the motions. About 40 years ago, I decided that my life needed to be turned around. And in the quietness of one evening, I gave my heart, my life, my soul to God, accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I took care of that. We, after that, we moved to Lake Havasu where we attended a Christian church the Christian church required baptism in order to become a member, not just the sprinkling baptism, but immersion. So Sandy and I had a baptism party at our pool in, in Lake Havasu where both Sandy and I were baptized by immersion. We were immersed in our pool along with maybe four or five other people that same day. So it was a delightful day for all of us as we truly 
did what the Bible asks us to do. That particular church, I was ordained as an elder and served there, and it, I was also on the or the search committee for a pastor, and Sandy and I wound up with Velcro children. One was the young pastor who later on married uh, one of our church members there. They became Velcro children. You know what a Velcro child is? They just kind of stick. You can't get rid of them, just like the Velcro. <laughs> they gave us two wonderful Velcro grandkids. Uh, I served there as an elder, like I said, and then we later on went to a Southern Baptist church. And while we were at the Southern Baptist Church, I served there as a deacon. I was ordained there as a deacon. I served there for a number of years as deacon chairman. And here we are now at a Southern Baptist Church in Sun City West, and I'm a candidate for deacon. Again, like I said, my name is Casey. I'm a believer. See you in heaven. <laughs> Jim? Well, as a youngster, my folks took me to church. At the time, it didn't mean a whole lot. And I suppose that's because my folks were making me go. That changed when, as a 13-year-old boy, I had my first personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It was at that time that I knew he was real. The circumstance was a terrible car crash that nearly took my father's life. As you might expect, when I met the Lord, I told him, save my dad and I'm yours. Well, over the ensuing years, like so many other youngsters, I wandered pretty far away from him. The event that brought me back to him was meeting my future wife in 1963. But that's a story for another time. After returning from the service in 1965, Diana and I began to date. I asked to get together with her one Sunday evening, and she explained that she and her family always attended evening service on Sunday. But I was welcome to come along if I wanted to. Well, being very enamored with that young lady, I jumped at the chance. That was the evening that changed my life forever. I really enjoyed the service and the personal experience I had learning about the Lord. It brought me back to that time of my first encounter with him back when I was 13. And I wanted more. In January of 1966, I gave my life to Christ in believer's baptism. Since then, God has been first in our lives, marriage and family. He has been there with us through good, mediocre, and hard times. But he has always been there. If I had the time, I could recount to you many instances where God carried us through all the events in our lives. And some of you would probably have very similar stories. The 
position of a deacon is not one of honor, is a position of service, a service to the congregation and to the pastor. Having served previously, I have some knowledge of the task and what is required. Therefore, if confirmed to serve you, I would ask for your ongoing prayer that I can serve faithfully, serve God faithfully, serve you faithfully, and serve our pastor faithfully. Thank you. A couple of things. If you have not already purchased your ticket for the Thanksgiving Missions Awareness Banquet, you will need to do that either today or next Sunday for sure. And Carol Woods will be in the small lobby if you would like to purchase that ticket after today. These shoe boxes need to be taken today and filled and brought back by next Sunday. There are a number of boxes just inside the CLC on the table as well as in the main lobby out front. There's a list inside. When the boxes were folded, it covered up the fact that you are asked to provide $10 for postage to help offset the cost. But if you would include in your box the items that are, will be sent for a little boy or a little girl and also the $10 for postage, we would really appreciate that. There are sign-up sheets in both lobbies for the SOS, which is Single Only Sisters. They will be having a time of Thanksgiving praise this Thursday at 2 o'clock and also for the men's ministry luncheon, which will be next Tuesday, the 15th. You'll need to sign up for that then if you haven't already. I encourage you to stand as Bill Swinney, who is our Deacon Council Chairperson, comes to lead us in our closing prayer. May we pray. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Bless us as we go. Help us to carry your word through throughout the community and where all, where all we go. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and caring for us. In your holy name we ask it. Amen.